You're listening to Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. I'm your host, Troy Kitch. A couple of episodes ago, I told you about our photo contest for World Ocean Day on June 8th. Wow, did we get a lot of submissions. We received over 400 photos from NOS fans here in the U.S. and around the world, from as far away as India and Indonesia. The response was amazing. So we picked a few of our favorites and posted them in a gallery on our website. But we had such a hard time picking just a few that we decided to go ahead and post all of the images on our Flickr page. You can find that at flickr.com slash usoceangov, all one word. And trust me, it's worth your time to check this out. Now for some news. Our first story is about the record floods along the Mississippi River this year. Besides the visible damage caused by the flooding river to towns and property and crops, there's a less visible problem that we may see down the road as floodwaters flow into the Gulf of Mexico. This is one of the lesser known side effects of the flooding, as all of that excess floodwater washes over densely populated areas in fields where crops are grown, it absorbs lots and lots of nutrients, chemicals like nitrogen and phosphorus. These chemicals come from fertilizers used to grow our food and chemicals that make our lawns lush and green, as well as from runoff from urban areas and from wastewater. The nutrients are gathered up by the water, carried downstream, and they eventually end up in the Gulf. Now you probably think of nutrients as good things, right? I know I usually do. We add fertilizers to our gardens, after all, to make our tomatoes grow bigger. Well, as is often the case, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. So here's the problem. As the water from the Mississippi River flows into the Gulf of Mexico, it takes with it all of the nitrogen and phosphorus and other nutrients picked up along the way. Just as nutrients help plants grow in your garden, the nutrients in the Gulf of Mexico carried from inland sources help algae grow in the water in great, great quantities. So there are two problems with this. First, algae can grow in such vast numbers that it can block out sunlight that plants like seagrass need to survive. Second, when these large blooms of algae eventually die off, the decaying process can suck up most of the oxygen in the water in that area. So this can lead to areas with very little oxygen left in the water. It's a condition called hypoxia, but you'll often hear these areas called dead zones. And these don't just happen in the Gulf. Dead zones occur in the Chesapeake Bay, in the Pacific Northwest, all over the nation in fact, and in coastal areas around the globe. Now while some creatures can escape out of these zones to water with more oxygen, many plants and animals can't get out of the area and they die. Hypoxia is a continuing problem in the Gulf of Mexico. Each year, the size of the dead zones in the Gulf vary, and that has a lot to do with the quantities of nutrients that are picked up from inland sources, carried down the river, and dumped into the body of water. And even when there's not a flood, there are still large quantities of nutrients picked up by the river as it flows through urban areas and farmland. But as you might imagine, flooding leads to more nutrients in the water. And so it goes with this year's unprecedented flood season. A new forecast released last week predicts, in fact, that this year's Gulf of Mexico's hypoxic zone may be the largest ever recorded. Scientists are predicting the area can measure between 8,500 and 9,421 square miles. And that's an area roughly the size of New Hampshire. If it does reach those levels, it will be the largest since mapping of the Gulf dead zone began in 1985. The largest hypoxic zone measured to date occurred in 2002, and that encompassed more than 8,400 square miles. So that's the forecast. The actual size of the 2011 hypoxic zone will be released following a NOAA-supported monitoring survey led by the Louisiana University's Marine Consortium. 
and that's going to be between July 25th and August 6th. This annual forecast is delivered by a team of NOAA-supported scientists from the Louisiana University's Marine Consortium, as I just mentioned, Louisiana State University, and the University of Michigan. It's based on Mississippi River nutrient inputs compiled and measured annually by the U.S. Geological Survey. If you want to learn more about this, check out our show notes for the links. Now we're going to shift from talking about algal blooms that lead to dead zones to algal blooms that produce toxins. You probably know these better as red tides. Now, algae are usually harmless, and they're really important because they're food for many animals. But at times when they bloom out of control, some types of algae start to produce powerful toxins that kill fish and make shellfish dangerous to eat. These toxins threaten marine ecosystems, they can make people sick, and they cost local and regional economies millions of dollars every year through fishery closures and recreation and tourism losses because vast swaths of water have to be closed off until the danger is passed. Now the question is, why do some species of algae produce toxins in the first place? It's a long-running mystery. Scientists have suggested that possible functions of the toxins include catching their prey, deterring predators from eating them, or as a means to keep competition away. Well, now new NOAA-funded research points to a new possibility. Last week, researchers at Texas A&M University published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences on why red-tide algae in the Gulf of Mexico produce toxins. Graduate student Regan Herrera and oceanography professor Lisa Campbell in the College of Geosciences identified a trigger for production of brevotoxin, that's the potent neurotoxin found in a common type of harmful algae in the Gulf of Mexico, called Karenia brevis. The new study suggests that as red tides move on shore and mix with fresher water, the Karenia cells must adjust rapidly to this change in salinity. And as they adjust, brevotoxin within the cell increases to allow the cells to keep their water and salt content more in balance. In their report, the researchers demonstrate that brevotoxin production increases dramatically when cells are shifted from higher concentrations of salt typical of the open ocean to lower salinity typical of coastal waters. In fact, the study says the transition to lower salt environment triggered a 14-fold increase in brevotoxin. So what can these new findings do for us? Well, now that we have a better understanding of why this type of algae produces toxin, well, experts like public health officials and coastal managers are going to be better equipped to monitor and respond to future red tide events to protect human health. And that's good news. And that's all for this episode. If you have any questions about the podcast, about the National Ocean Service, or about our ocean, we hope you send us a note. We're at nos.info at noaa.gov. And visit us online. We are at oceanservice.noaa.gov. This is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. We'll return in two weeks 